Can you hold your own with most of the men players? She just started laughing. And she said, well, right now, Andrew Murray is the top-ranked men's player. I'll just be honest with you. If Andrew Murray and I played, he would beat me 6-0-6-0 in about 10 minutes. And she started laughing. <laughs> they showed that clip. It was, so, you know, we tend to gravitate towards stupidity. Anything else? Anybody see anything else wild and stupid? Hmm? <laughs> you know, um, Martin Luther used to say the one thing the devil cannot stand is to be mocked. So if you do not know about the Babylon Bee, does anybody know what I'm talking about? And if you don't know what it is, just Google Babylon Bee, Babylon, and then B-E-E. It's a Christian satire thing. It's free. You can subscribe. You get a bunch of stuff every day. If we don't laugh through a lot of this stuff, we will become like them. So we got to keep a sense of humor through all this. And I don't know if you saw the latest Babylon Bee thing was, you know, a uh, bag of cocaine, uh, uh, Secret Service stifled by uh, whose bag of cocaine this could be marked with H. Biden on it. <laughs> and uh, actually, I said to the Thursday morning men's crew, I said, Finding cocaine in the White House actually, to me, is a, a sign of hope. Because, you know, when you are so skewed, when you're living a lie, and when you're acting stupid, when you know it's really wrong, after a while, that gets to you, and it, it'll get, get you unless you medicate. So at least somebody in the White House is unable to live with themselves, so at least they're snorting cocaine. So I take that as a sign of hope. Uh, but you know, there are cameras everywhere in the White House. There is no way they do not know where that came from. No way. If this was if this was three years ago, this would be the lead story from now until Jesus returns. Every day. And they would know who it is. And they, oh, it's just, yeah, they expect us that we're that stupid. Oh. Bill? Well, it's ended here in the United States. Well, it's not ended here in the United States. There's slavery going on right now. It's human trafficking is another way to put it. Many of these children coming across the border, they are laboring uh, under the radar and doing other things. Uh, they're totally illegal sexually and everything else. So, and there's more slaves in the world right now than any other time in human history. And it's never gone away. We've legislated against it, but it's still out there. And again, we're at the epicenter, the crossroads 
of the human trafficking movement in the United States. They're coming from the southern border. I-35 goes to Minneapolis. I-10 goes from Los Angeles to Miami. And so they come up and they either go whoop or whoop. And it's all happening right here, right within walking distance of our church. What's the name of it? Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom. I heard it advertised on the radio. And yeah, it sounds like a great film. So. So there are some signs of hope yet. Okay. As our good friend Paul Kasher says, none of this makes God nervous. I got to remind myself, but it makes us nervous, and we got to be Christ's hands and feet and His heart while we're here doing hopefully His will. Let's pray, and then we're going to take a look at the first apostolic council. If you've got your Bible, there's Bibles over there the racks or pull it up on your phone, Acts 15. I'm going to walk you through this and show how there's nothing new under the sun and how the first apostolic council addresses the key things that are still plaguing our nation and the world today. So let's pray. Lord God, uh, obviously you have a sense of humor or you would have wiped us all out long ago. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you are a God uh, beyond that of a God of grace and mercy a God of not just second chances, but umpteenth chances. And we thank you for doing for us what we could not, cannot, and will never be able to do for ourselves, accomplishing our salvation, that once for all sufficient, perfect sacrifice on the cross that covers all of our sin, takes us out of slavery, and brings us into real life in, of freedom in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you guide our thoughts today and help us to understand uh, your clear will on how to navigate this crazy time that we're in. And we, we pray for those who are hostages, Lord. Uh, help us to love them. We pray for the Biden family. I pray for Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Zelensky, Premier Xi of China. Lord, regenerate their hearts. Bring them into a saving relationship with Christ. How that would change the face of the world, at least for a while. And Lord, we pray that you would raise up more and more men and women here in our country, men and women who cannot and will not be bought, who will not lie, who will be elected to all different kinds of offices and will go with a servanthood posture, not trying to gain power or wealth, but to really serve the people who have elected them. We pray that from the White House down to dog catchers. Uh, in this next election, Lord, uh, that that also might be used by you in some small way to turn our country back to yourself. At the same time, we confess, you've got to do it. We, we can't do it uh, if we uh, harbor ideas that if we just elect all the right people or get everything funded or whatever, that somehow humanity can turn this country around. We're mistaken. Only you can do it. Please Keep your hand upon the United States of America. Please guide us through, help us to faithfully navigate our way through all of this stuff that's happening. And uh, we pray that this nation would once again honor you uh, as the Lord of the universe. And we ask all of this 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at this. Uh, you know, again, I said last week, uh, occasionally people say to me, let's go back and try to be like the early church. And I always say, no, you don't want to do that. The early church was filled with problems and difficulties and collisions between people um, and, and error, all kinds of error. They were feeling their way along, and they made about every bad mistake you could make. Calvin and Luther didn't want to go back to the early church. They wanted to go back to the fourth century church. By the fourth century, the church had kind of figured, started doing biblical theology, uh, really getting, uh, developing a whole theology of the Trinity and the Christology, the deity and full humanity of Christ. And, and uh, that's the, that was called the golden age of theology. You had the great early church fathers like Augustine, Irenaeus, uh, people like that. So um, here's a perfect example in Acts 15 of uh, what happens when human beings collide. Now, last week we were talking about, you know, how free are we in Christ? And I, I posit that we're probably a whole lot more free than we think. We tend to want all kinds of legalisms and laws to, to make sure we're walking just the right way. And I think Jesus, in his, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, tells a story about the man who builds his house on the sand and on the rock. And I think through that parable, he's really saying, as long as you build on me and you're anchored on me, you're pretty much free to design the house however you want, as long as you're anchored on me. And, uh, but any other foundation, even good stuff, like your family or your marriage or your health or the church, nothing can bear the weight of your house except the rock, and Christ is the rock. So once we're grounded on Christ, we may be more free. And that was the message in the early church. And the Jewish Christians coming to Christ, they were used to all the Judaic laws, 648 of them, and they couldn't quite let go of all that stuff. You know, it's a running joke amongst pastors in eco uh, that you can, you can take, uh, you know, the Israelites out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the Israelites. That's true. I find myself, wait a minute, we got to check. Oh, no, we don't. We're now in eco. But that stuff's so ingrained in us. And the Gentiles that were coming to Christ, they know nothing of the Jewish laws. And so, what if you were a Jewish Christian, and here comes a bunch of Gentiles? We've got to make them look and act like us, right? And that was the first big collision. No, it was a second collision. The first collision was between Peter and Paul over whether the gospel was for Gentiles at all. Peter was arguing, this is just for us. God, we are God's chosen people, and that's it. He didn't choose anybody else, even though the Old Testament really shows that he will be drawing all nations. But somehow the Jews had their blinders on, even Peter. Paul and him duke it out. It takes a miraculous vision of the sheet coming down with all these unclean animals. And God saying to Peter, Peter, arise, kill and eat. Peter, oh, no, no, I'm a good Jewish boy. I'm not gonna... And God says, don't call unclean what I've now declared clean. So Peter has his eyes opened that the gospel's for everybody. And uh, this message is just starting to get out in the church. 
But in Antioch, where Christians are first called Christians, there's a collision between these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians over what needs to be observed from their past Judaism. And we pick up the story in Acts 15. And I'm going to read through this and kind of give you a little running commentary. It says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, quote, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's a heresy floating around in the early church. You've got to be circumcised in order to be saved by Christ. Gentiles. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, they're having a, they're duking it out. Uh, this is Luke's, you know, kind way of saying they're, they're having an all-out brawl here, theological brawl. No small dissension and debate. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. See, tons of Gentiles are coming to Christ, thousands of them. And it says it brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said the same thing. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is the first, what's known as the first apostolic council. And there's been about seven of them through church history. And after there had been much debate, so they're going back and forth, Peter stood up and said to them, Peter who was known to say, hey, Gentiles probably can't even come into the faith. And he, most people are probably thinking, even if he says they can, certainly he's going to side with the Judaizers. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So here's Peter stepping forward and, and throwing down the gauntlet. He says, I no longer believe all that stuff I used to. The gospel's open to any and all people, and you're saved by grace through faith, not through being circumcised or keeping certain Judaic laws. Um, Peter's saying here, we're all more free than we have ever believed. And it says, all the, let's see, um, all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James, the brother of Jesus, stands up in this council, and he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. 
And, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. And here's James reminding them that the Old Testament foretold this from the beginning. It was not just the Jews were going to be the only people saved. So he quotes, After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So here's, here's the Old Testament saying there's going to be a day when God's going to start drawing all people. And then James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things... He lists three things. Things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now there's some debate whether there's four things. Strangle is one thing. Blood is another. Some think the blood and the strangle go together. And I'll explain that in just a minute. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the council says they go with James, and they decide to send a letter via uh, some folks back to Antioch to, to lay this out. Here's how it goes. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And then Luke quotes the actual text of the letter that's sent. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with the words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's the first apostolic council. So they're saying you're free in Christ from all these hundreds of Judaic laws. But there are some things that will keep you on the rails that you are to avoid any cost. And I, I think, um, so here they are. I, I'm going to put them down in, into just three categories. Because that's strangling. What, what, they're, what they're saying is that um, they used to sell meat in the marketplace in the Gentiles. Meat that had been offered to idols. And you've got to understand something about blood in the Jewish way of thinking. And the Bible says the, the life of any being is in the blood. And Hebrews were instructed not to eat the blood of animals. They were supposed to drain the blood out. The Gentiles liked a, a good bloody mess. It was a delicacy. And um, so he, he's saying, refrain from those meats that have been sold in the market that have been dedicated to idols. Um, and refrain from eating 
animals have been strangled that still have the blood. And fornication, sexual immorality. This is not original with me. Most theologians today boil it down to three things that Christians are to avoid. And if you do, you'll be on the right track. The first is idolatry of any sort. Now, what is an idol? What's well, anything and everything that you put ahead of God? And it can be good things. Again, your marriage can be an idol. Your health can be an idol. Your money can be an idol. You can go on and on and on. John Calvin said the, the human heart is a factory of idols. We're churning them out all the time. And you can, I can argue with you that you can have, you can say God is the primary thing in my life. And if I ask you and dig down deep enough, I might be able to prove that that God you think is God is not the real God. How, how in the world, here's a, where the rubber meets the road question. How do you and I make sure we avoid idolatry? Not following a God who's not the one true living God. How do you do that? Any ideas? How can you be sure? You might say, I go to church. I worship God every week. Who is this God you're worshiping? Is it the one true living God? Or have you created your own God? It's very easy to do that. Growing up in the South, the segregated South, I knew people say, I'm a born-again Christian, but God is not for integration. Well, is that the real God? Huh? How can you be sure you're worshiping the one true living God? You know, you and I live in a day and age where biblical literacy is at an all-time low in the church. I'm guaranteed in the old days, Bible reading was touted as you know, a must for any and every Christian, not just for the pastors or Sunday school teachers. I will jump on that and say, if you're going out every day without being anchored in the Word of God, and I learned this from Martin Luther when he challenged his preaching students. He said, you're not going to be a good preacher if you don't read the Bible through every year. And I was like, I want to be a good preacher. So I've done it every year. Every Christian ought to be doing that. It's not hard. And if you're not doing that, you're setting yourself up to be a target in this insane world you're going out ungrounded, unanchored, and you can be easily seduced. There are plenty, there are plenty of preachers out there preaching stuff that sounds good, and they're packing people in the churches, and the gods that they are putting out there is not the God you meet in Scripture. I'm going to challenge you every day for the rest of your life. You need to make a commitment to read through the Bible every year. You can buy what's called the one-year Bible. It, every day it gives you all your passages. It takes you 20 to 25 minutes a day. Man, what a sacrifice tonight. You will find yourself, and don't worry, some days I read and if you gave me a test on what I wrote, I'd flunk it. Because my mind is off somewhere. 
But you know, it's like eating food. You may not remember what you had yesterday, but it's nourishing you. And the Holy Spirit's at work bringing this, doing a job on you. Now, this thing needs to have a big warning label on it. Because if you have a God who's not the one true living God right now, you, you're going to be running into all kinds of stuff that's going to make you mad and going, oh, I can't believe it. Because this book is God's self-revelation. And he reveals himself as a God who is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's not a God that you can domesticate. He's not a God that you and I can defang or declaw. And there are parts of the Bible I don't like. And I sit there and I go, God! And I always use the story of David and Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. They're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And God said, nobody's to touch the ark. Not even the priests. They can carry it on the poles, but nobody touches the ark. And they're coming in, the ark's on a cart, being pulled by oxen. The cart tips. The ark obviously is sliding. It's going to go off. Uzzah, good guy, standing there. He's coming on. He puts his hand on the ark to steady it. And God strikes him dead. I don't know about you, that makes me mad. It made David mad. David's crying, you, what, what are you doing, you know? Um, I preached a sermon on that one time, and I said, you know, give him hemorrhoids or something, but don't kill him. <laughs> I don't like that God. Guess what? You have a choice. You can make God in your own image, what you want to be like, or you can take the one that's revealed here. And the same God that struck Uzzah is the same God that says, for, for I so love the world, I gave my only begotten son. It's not either or. The Hebrew word for faith, all Hebrew words have a double meaning. The other meaning is tension. You know, most Christians, myself included, are on the quest for a comfortable faith. People come to me and go, I want to find a church that's comfortable. I always say, when you do, leave it. God doesn't want you and me comfortable. He wants us honed and on the cutting edge of living for him in a fallen world. And I'm also right now just finishing Job. And that's another, I don't like the way God acts in that book. Um, but that's the oldest book in the Bible, which I think God's way of saying, here's the front door of the faith. If you can make it through this, then everything else is going to fall into place. You know, why did God allow Satan to do those things to Job? Well, it turns out okay in the end. No, it doesn't. He's still got 10 dead kids. Having buried one of my own, I, you know, it's not, you forget about him. Now nah, I'm living great. No. Um, and I just finished God, the longest speech of God in Scripture, where he takes Job on the carpet and all of his friends and says, where were you when I hung the universe? Blah, blah, blah. And... Um, how, the book is to show you and me how a faithful person responds to the unfairness, seeming unfairness of God. Job never cusses him out. His wife says, curse him and die. And Job repents. And he says, I don't understand everything, but I'm willing to follow you. And that's the mark of faith. None of us go through this world where everything's falling into place. We're going to hit things, and you're going to hit it in Scripture. Where I don't like this, I'm going to trust. When God says, my ways are not your ways, 
that he means that, and this is somehow justice is going to win out in the end. But read the Bible through the lens of the cross. When you look at everything you don't like and see Christ hanging on the cross, it makes me able to live with it. And I know that God is for me. That he's done everything possible to save me. So I'm going to put these other things on hold. C.S. Lewis says we're going to spend the first 10,000 years in eternity going, oh, now I understand. I think there's truth to that. So I want to challenge you. Read through the Bible every year. Start right now. Get the Bible reading calendar and start where it is on July 9th. Forget about first and just pick up and go and then pick up in January, starting at the beginning and go through this. You will be honed. You will be challenged. Your faith will be built up like crazy. The Bible's done more for me than four years of seminary. And otherwise, you're going out into the fray unarmed and you're going to be easily captured. And this is not some intellectual exercise. You're, you and I should be reading the Bible saying, Lord, never read it without first asking the Holy Spirit to open the text to you and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me. I want to come into a relationship with you. Show me who you really are. That's the only way you and I can avoid idolatry, to have the Word of God stripping the idols out of our lives every day. Otherwise, our hearts are a factory of idols. So avoid idolatry um, and avoid blood. Now, to the Hebrews, the commandment, you shall not kill, you shall not murder, uh, that was talking about the taking of innocent blood. Remember when Cain kills his brother Abel, and God says, your brother's blood was crying to me from the ground. And Cain took innocent blood. And so the, the, the commandment is, has nothing to do with uh, no warfare or capital punishment or anything like that. It's about the taking of innocent blood. And I believe that's a hallmark in our culture today. Where, where is innocent blood being taken today in our culture? Abortion is the prime example. I mean, you, you can give me all the arguments why somebody should get an abortion. It's still taking an innocent life. I know it's a hard decision for some people, but if you're anchored in Christ, it should make it easier. And I, I really don't understand how you can be a Christian and think that's a good thing. It's to take an innocent life. Somebody, Ann and I lived in Charlotte, gosh, 40-some years ago, um, this is like 78. We got the Charlotte Observer, and one of their columnists was uh, Louis Grizzard. And uh, I think he's dead now. He was a national columnist. Somebody wrote in and said, I know you're pro-choice, but if you had to make a pro-life argument, what would you say? And he lays out this scenario of this uh, mentally ill, poor young girl who was raped by a uh, guy with syphilis, and, and there was a whole bunch of other stuff. And um, so she gets an abortion. So you 
Never listened to anything by Ludwig van Beethoven because he was the product of that. Um, some of you men were at the uh, Every Woman Can breakfast a few weeks ago here, and an African-American guy who's a singer, an author, um, I mean, he was just a great speaker, talented, he's won Emmys, and uh, toward the end of his talk, I mean, you're just in rapture with this guy, he was so good, and he's put a PowerPoint up there, he says, you know, I want you to know who I am, and he throws up these PowerPoints, and it's all these words of uh, college graduate, masters, and this and that, and Emmy Awards, and, but there's space, words down here, and words up here, and then he says, one last word, and in big red letters, uh, the phrase, and product of rape. So that's who I am. So, you know, most people say, oh, in cases of rape and incest, still an innocent life, and I know that great, it grates against my gut, but, you know, where do you draw the line on innocent life? Uh, I think I said here last week, I saw a clip where Whoopi Goldberg was arguing that this is a choice between me and my doctor and the baby. I'm like, oh, really? I didn't know the babies got to vote. If they did, I'm not sure they would. There's other innocent. Can you think of other things in our culture that are the taking of innocent blood? Child trafficking. Child trafficking? Yeah. There's taking of innocent blood every weekend in just about every city, drive-by shootings, little children getting shot in their beds. And there's just, it's, we're on a rampage of that. And nobody's doing it. You know, Let's pass stricter gun laws. And we do. And it still happens. You know. Any other examples of taking innocent blood? Capital punishment. Well, um, some people would argue that that's a person who's been convicted. They're guilty. They're not innocent. And so, but they're Ch Chuck Colson who founded Prison Fellowship. He was Nixon's hatchet man. His favorite line, or famous line, was, I'm willing to throw my grandmother under the bus, <laughs> Richard Nixon. You know, Colson, he's convicted, he's gonna to go to prison. A CEO of a company who, uh, who's friends with, hands him the book, uh, 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 Mere Christianity, by C.S. Lewis. He says, you might wanna read this, you gotta have time in prison. And Colson reads it, and is born again. His autobiography is called Born Again. In prison, he becomes a Christian. He looks around and sees this prison, and he thinks, these guys need Christ. And so he founds Prison Fellowship. That's gone international. We had him twice come here, preaching in our pulpit. Um, and so I got to meet him. Chuck, Chuck was against capital punishment. Here was his argument. He said, if a guy's convicted and put on death row, uh, and we kill him and he hasn't come to Christ, that takes away that opportunity. He said, I'd rather give him life imprisonment and work on him or hopefully he'll come to Christ. And I find myself wanting to, I, I, I'm fine with that. I'm fine. I really don't like capital punishment. But um, there's other theologians who said, well, that's not innocent blood. Those are, you know, was Jeffrey Dahmer innocent blood? <laughs> no. Um, and we, you know, we look at him as the worst case scenario of a human being, he's a cannibal and all that. He came to Christ in prison. Then he was murdered in prison. I fully expect to see 
Jeffrey Dahmer. What if you have to sit next to Jeffrey Dahmer throughout eternity? How would you like that? He might be saying the same thing about you. I mean, we're, we're all in the same boat. He's, he doesn't deserve hell any more than I do. Uh, my crimes are just a little bit nicer. But we all are headed for hell. And uh, so, uh, but you know, I'm glad he came to Christ before he was killed. But he, he was not going to be executed. He just had life in prison, I guess. And, but somebody murdered him and stabbed him in jail. Can you think of any other instances of taking innocent blood? War, yeah. You know, the people that suffer worst in a war are children who have, they didn't do anything to start this. I think of Ukraine, all these hospital maternity wards being bombed. You know, what the heck? So that's something we should refrain from. This pushes some Christians to be pacifists. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we even read his paper. He was a pacifist, came out of World War I, saw how horrible that was, and became a pacifist. Then he watches what Hitler is doing, and he gets into this ethical dilemma of, you know, is it a worse sin to let Hitler live and go on with this, or should he be taken out? Because his brother-in-law was involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler, and he talks to Dietrich, he's trying to get him to come in with them. And he does, finally. He comes to the conclusion that it would be that either way is sin, but sometimes you have to take the lesser of two evils, we say, um, sin, and then ask God's forgiveness. So Bonhoeffer is executed because of that, because all those guys were tracked down and found out, and he's hung in the Flossenburg concentration camp 10 days before he was liberated by the U.S. forces. So he paid, and his great quote, which was supposed to be the end of my sermon three weeks ago. I forgot to put it in there. Um, how, uh, you, you know, life can be in a minor key and then end on a major key. Bonhoeffer standing on the gallows. His last words were, this is the end. And then he pauses and he goes, for me, the beginning of life. And then, so he stayed faithful to the end. Then fornication, which is obvious. And I, I think this is important to us because, as I said last week, there's tons of people I know in the evangelical community who are saying, hey, this human sexuality thing, it's just, you know, pervasive. And why don't we just go along with it? And it really, you know, we're not Puritans anymore and blah, 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 blah. And that sounds good. That's very tempted, tempting to go that direction. Let's just go with the crowd. The first apostolic council says no. And the Christian church ever since then has said no, no, no. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. Two, two, not five. Will be, man and woman will become one flesh. That is what mostly reflects the imago dei, the image of God. And... Um, so we're being tempted in our culture today to just cross the line on all this stuff. If we keep this in mind, we're liable to stay more sane. Now, I want to take you on a little philosophical journey. I never took philosophy in college, so I'm not a philosopher, at least professionally, but I do think a lot. And I just want to walk you through some of the basic questions that everybody should be asking. And secular philosophers will tell you that 
the bottom line question under every other question is, is this one. Why is there something rather than nothing? That's the philosophical question. Why are we here? Why am I here? Why is this thing? Where did this come? Why is there nothing instead of something? There's only two answers to that. Either this is all an accident, like Darwinian evolution, or there's some kind of designer or creator who put this together. Those are the only two answers. There's nothing in between. So one of the questions you have to ask after that is, well, what's, is it possible that this is an accident? Is it possible? Sure. Is it possible that there's a creator? It's possible. But you always need to ask yourself the difference between possibility and probability. Okay, is it possible? If I created a machine and I said, and I put a, a billion dials on it, and I said to you, if you can adjust the billions of dials, and all of them have to be exact, this door is going to pop open and there's going to be a billion dollars for you, tax free. All you got to do is get all the dials straight. And guess what? I can uh, give you a longevity of life. I'm going to give you 13.4 billion years to experiment. Is it possible that somebody might get the billion dials all set exactly and the door swings up? Possible that they, you know, randomly then it happens. Um, is it probable? No. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many billions of years I give you. To get a billion dials all set exactly, can't be one little thing off on any of them. To make that simpler, you go for a walk in the woods. You're wondering, I wonder if anybody's ever been through here before. Suddenly you, become, you come upon a pile of rocks stacked one another. Now, is it possible that those rocks got there by themselves like that? Is it possible? I mean, could there have been an earthquake and these rocks were tossed up in the air and they all land? Possible? Yeah, possible. That could happen. What's the probability? Or you see a turtle on a fence post up there, you know. What, what, what's, is it possible he got up there by himself? I don't know, maybe he was a super turtle and he got up there and then lost his superpower. Is it probable? No. Somebody put him up there. Somebody stacked the rocks. So when you say, is it, why is there something rather than nothing? And you say, which is most probable? That there's a creator. There's a design behind this. You know, I'm a scientist. I go where the evidence takes me. I don't have to have it all, you know, 100%. I just, I'm going to go as far as the evidence will take me. That the universe is an accident. And by the way, the billion dials, I created those. <laughs> I thought up the whole thing. So there was an intelligence behind that. Uh, to say this is all an accident, you've got to say there's no intelligence out there at all. Astrophysicists today, secular guys, they call it the anthropic principle that because the universe they're discovering is so finely tuned, there's more than a billion dials, to the point that if you took a dime's worth of matter out of the universe or added a dime's worth of matter, no life could be supported on Earth. If you've never read the book, The Privileged Planet by Gustavo Gutierrez, he's a, 
astrophysicists at Iowa State. It'll blow your mind how this, this, and he doesn't talk about God in the thing. He just shows how everything is set up in the universe to support life on this planet. I can't get, it's too complex to get into, but it's written for lay people, so you don't have to be an astrophysicist. Okay, if you come down on the idea, well, there's a creator, then the next question you've got to ask is, if there is a creator, has he tried to communicate with his creation? Now, deists say there is a God, but deists will say, no. He doesn't communicate. He, it's like the watchmaker. He's wound up this clock, the universe, and then set it aside, and it's just running. A theist is a person who says, no, there is a creator, and he's, and he's tried to communicate with us. You know, we have radio telescopes focused all over our planet right now, listening. People that we believe there might be. Is it possible that there's other intelligence in the universe? Possibility. What's the probability? As a scientist myself, I find it very improbable that there's another point. I mean, billions of galaxies and trillions of stars and planets. It sounds like, well, the odds are, yeah, but they're all fine-tuned to support life here. There doesn't seem to be a planet anywhere that we know of that is like the Earth, that has all these protections and just the right distance from the sun and all this stuff. Possible, yeah. I don't think the probability is very high. That's, I may be wrong. But we have enough people in our government out there to think, well, we got to make sure. So we're listening all the time. Another reason I think it's improbable is if these beings are so intelligent, why haven't they come down? Well, they haven't. Why don't they just make themselves known? Yeah. Or else they've studied us and they go, oh, man. Yeah. Um, if you've never read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, the first one, uh, uh, Out of the Silent Planet, Lewis says planet Earth is the only one that has sin in it, and there's other planets with beings, and they stay away from us. <laughs> uh, anyway. And if there are beings out there, Christ died on the cross for them too. I, I would say that. But um, has he tried to communicate with his creator? Well, he, there's only two answers. Yes or no. If you say no, well, how, do you, how can you prove that? If you say yes, well, again, how do you prove that? And what's the probability and possibility? Well, as Christians, we say he has communicated with us. In fact, he's given us two books. The first is the book of nature. The Bible says, look around you. The whole heavens declare his glory. You know? um, but he's also given this, uh, this book, the Bible, self-revelation. So if so, how? We say through the two books of nature. But then another question is, is he knowable? Not just in terms of factual, well, he's big and infinite and blah, blah, blah. But is he knowable? In other words, is he personal, personable? And that's where this book says yes. In fact, he's imago dei means that God doesn't have two arms and two legs. It means that he's personality with a capital P, and he's created us as personalities, and person to person we can relate to this God and know him more than at a factual level. But in infant, the Bible uses a word for know that's 
it's a synonym for, or a synonym for sexual intercourse. It doesn't mean we're to have sex with God. It just means it's, we can know God intimately. Uh, like Adam knew Eve, we can know God. And is he knowable? Well, it's one thing to know somebody, um, but does he care? Does he love us? And again, the Christian faith is really the only faith that says yes. In Islam, there's no concept of God being a God of grace or God of love. Why anybody's attracted to Islam, I have no clue. He's this God, tyrant. He has all these laws. And if you don't keep them, you're toast. And if I really believed that and I was a Muslim, I'd be pulling the cord right now and taking you all out with me because the only way you can be guaranteed of eternal life is to be martyred, self-martyr. So if I really believe that, I'd be taking you all out with me. But, um, have I told the joke, the Islam, uh, Osama bin Laden joke, but my favorite joke in here? This is a dated joke, and it's bad theology, but it's funny. And Osama bin Laden goes to a leadership training seminar, and the guy's saying, you know, never ask your employees to do what you're not willing to model. He goes, gosh, having all these guys blow themselves up I guess I better do that. So he wires himself with dynamite, goes into the building. It's dated because he's gone. Boom! Blows himself up. He arrives in heaven. Here's the bad theology. Uh, he arrives in heaven, and the first person he meets is George Washington. George Washington walks up to him and goes, you tried to destroy the country I founded. Punches him, and he's, whoa! And suddenly Thomas Jefferson appears and kicks him in the knee. Patrick Henry comes and cracks him in the back. And then Robert E. Lee shows up and throws him on the ground. And then Stonewall Jackson starts jumping up and down on him. This goes on for about an hour. And he's all beat up. And Peter comes walking along. And Osama says, oh, I have a question. Yeah, what is it? I thought this was heaven. He goes, it is. He goes, well, my Muslim theology, theology said when I got to heaven, I'd be met by 70 virgins. Peter said, oh, no, 70 Virginians. <laughs> My family's from Virginia, so I love that joke. Okay. So does he love us? And if so, what's the evidence? Back to how you read the Bible and look at life through the lens of the cross. The evidence is the cross. How far will this God go to communicate with us, to love us, save us, rescue us, willing? And, and you know, again, Job goes through this unfair, unjust stuff. Uh, uzzah, unfair, unjust stuff. You can't turn around and go, well, God, you make us go through that, but you don't. What's the, capital T-H-E, underlined 18 times, what is the most unjust, awful, horrendous, holocaustical thing that's ever happened in the history of the world? It's the crucifixion. The Holocaust is bad, but it's not... To take God and crucify the almighty God of the universe who created billions and to... I don't, I've never... Have you all ever read the novel Frankenstein? I read it back in high school. Um, I need to research this. I've been thinking about this all week. I wonder if the guy who wrote it was a Christian. I don't know. Is there a gospel message in Frankenstein? Frankenstein... Growing, you know, we see a, the picture of Frankenstein on Halloween and said, we think, that's Frankenstein. That's not Frankenstein. That's the Frankenstein monster. 
Frankenstein is the doctor, the scientist, who creates this thing. He's trying to bring life, and the monster turns on him. Isn't that kind of the part of the gospel message? God creates us, and we turn on him. I can't remember how the novel ends. And he shouldn't be fooling around trying to bring life out of body parts. <laughs> so it gets off the rails there. But I wonder if... Uh, but the, Hmm? Was she a Christian? Did you know her? No. Anyway, I'm just curious, because there is kind of a parallel to God creates us, and we're the Frankenstein monster. We turn on him. And yet what does he do? Does he kill us? No, he goes to the cross for us and redeems us and brings, him back, brings us back to himself. So think about this as you go through life, most people are not asking these questions. They're just emoting and reacting to whatever the, on the thing. They're not asking the deep questions. And the Christian faith is the only one that answers all these questions down to the very end with a message of grace. It's the only one. Muhammad, before he died, said, I don't know where I will be in eternity. I don't know if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's Muslim theology. I hear too many Christians saying, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad. How would you know? Peter, this whole argument here, there's nothing you can do. You need to avoid this. This doesn't save you. This is just how you live sanely in an insane world. You're saved by grace, by what Christ did on the cross, there's one thing you and I contribute to our salvation. One thing and only one. Our sin. That's the only thing we bring to it. Christ does it all. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for doing for us what we could not, cannot, will never be able to do for ourselves. Thank you for loving us even though we've turned our backs on you and been the Frankenstein monster. Um, Lord, help us to faithfully navigate this crazy, broken world we're living in. Help us to avoid idolatry and fornication and taking of innocent blood and standing up and defending innocent blood, coming to know you every day more and more um, in the right way, and um, to remain sexually pure throughout our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.